0: You are listening to the Startup Mindsets Podcast, a podcast dedicated to uncovering how mindsets are built from fascinating startup entrepreneurs, innovation leaders, and investors. This podcast will give you a blueprint to thrive in an innovation-driven and globally connected world. I'm your
1: host, Dan Gonzalez, joined by Earl Valencia. Join us to learn about amazing people and their journeys to discover their own startup mindsets, and in the process, hopefully also discover yours. Here we go.
0: Yuvin Naidu has co-launched HBS's first short intensive program on scaling agility in January 2020. It brought together some of the world's leading agile practitioners to unpack best practices on how entrepreneurs, startups and multinational corporations can respond to volatility and rapid change. Welcome to the podcast,
2: Yuvin. It's a great pleasure to be here, Dan and uh oh uh.
1: yeah no thank you thank you yuvin and uh, just to come context in the audience um yuvin and i know each other because we're part of this really special group called the young global leaders of the world economic forum and uh, actually we came very close uh, over the past couple of years because when we when we looked at the people around the room and asked like who's who's really interested in two things one is in digital transformation and the fourth industrial revolution how it applies, and how it applies to emerging markets. Not a lot of people actually uh, intersect in the two, but Yuven and I had this kind of special connection that we are super passionate about these two things. And lo and behold, now is in the faculty of Harvard Business School's alma mater. So I'm super proud to be called one of Yubin's friends. So Yuvin, thanks so much again.
2: It's a great pleasure to be here. And Earl, you know, being part of the Young Global Leader community with you, a number of us admire your work, not just in the Philippines, but internationally, and specifically in your interplay between technology, venture capital and high-growth organizations. And Dan, very excited about your work from the West Coast. Uh, so thank you for talk for, for this invite about unpacking venture capital and exchanging ideas. Absolutely, even.
0: Now, you know, going into your background, you obviously have, you have a strong knowledge and understanding of. Uh, capital markets in emerging economies and perhaps what most people don't ever look into is Africa. Um, Some of what we're doing in this book is geared towards understanding more of a global perspective on products or launching a company or investing in in sort of that sphere. Why do you think VCs and founders should want to invest and create in these regions in the world that may not be as popular
2: to their peers? So it's a great question. Um, And if you go back to the roots of venture capital itself, venture capital is born in an era uh, of scarcity, an era of crisis. And the mindset within the VC, the so-called venture mindset, is one of what we call creative destruction, this famous adage that economists talk about. Um, And it's replacing... Existing business models replacing the way things are done with new approaches. In today's context, that would be the famous disruptive innovation of, for example, an Airbnb emerging out of the kind of venture capital landscape. The original founders looking for C capital, the original investors come in, people scale these businesses, and what are often underestimated models suddenly become highly successful models, where Airbnb now has more hotel rooms and some of the largest chains uh, put together. And we can repeat that model time and time again. But the venture model, if you go back to it, uh, many, many see its roots from George Dorio. And I want to go back to its history, historical roots, because oftentimes that's where you need to begin. And if you look at the so-called father of venture capital, uh, comes through the era of World War I, where he, he fought and during World War II and post that era, Gets into the ecosystem of the Harvard Business School. He's in Boston, and the seeds of what we now refer to as venture capital are formed when, through that element, he looks at the innovation that's taking place at the time, in terms of new technologies, entrepreneurs, innovation in this difficult time, World War II. It's scarce. There's challenges taking uh, place all around. uh, All around him, from a student, he becomes a faculty member. But he marries his experience in industry with this ecosystem around him. And together they create the American Research and Development Corporation, seen as amongst the first two or original venture capital funds. And what do they do? They partner with entrepreneurs at the so-called seed stage and help these technologies, these changes nurture through. If we fast forward to today and look at where opportunity uh, exists it is precisely at that point where they saw this underserved ecosystem or market entrepreneurs at a seed stage in the world of Dorio, where there was a mismatch between how do you get capital and not just capital, but expertise, guidance, mentorship to help this birth of a company, which is always a tough thing to go through, right? To take something from an idea into a going concern and then to scale it is always challenging. And that's why I think your question of where does opportunity lie? I think opportunity will always lie, of course, in the ecosystem we all spend time in, which is Silicon Valley. That's where Earl and I spent many hours uh, engaging in different forums, looking at business plans. Right. Of course, that ecosystem exists. And in the US, uh, it's gone to other areas. You know, you've got um, uh, um, other areas that are blossoming and worldwide, Their own versions, no one is trying to replicate Silicon Valley, okay? But their own versions of where technology meets capital, where ideas, it's not just about tech. And I would put forward that for the smart investor, of course, there's entrepreneurs in all parts of the world. And so as I marry my my, my life and work here in the US to my experience across the African continent, having worked in pan-African businesses, part of the leadership group, of two major banks uh, uh, country by country, incredible opportunities uh, uh, that exist. Now, each country is at a different stage of where that venture capital ecosystem is. But to answer your question, Dan, the origins of VC come out of this engine, this furnace of challenge, crises, and that's where the best ideas get formed. and I would put forward that depending on where you are in your experience as an LP, a limited partner looking for young talent that are growing funds, where you are in a fund that has received capital and is looking to deploy it, you need to be in the right place in your journey to take advantage of these opportunities that, that exist around the world. And my final point before I hand it back, because I'd love to get your thoughts and Earl's thought, is that. You've got to develop the muscle memory, be it in your specific sector or field. Of course, it's great to be a generalist, and we call it the T-shaped model. The T meaning great knowledge across the board. But what is that vertical? Now, that vertical could be a sector, could be fintech, very popular, could be healthcare, but also from a geographic perspective. You've got to know your ecosystem, your local context, right? And so some of the most exciting discussions I've had with Earl has been about being a bridge between the Philippines and the region that Earl is truly an expert in, as well as his expertise here in the US. And there are a number of other areas and sectors, but that's where I find the conversations become very, very powerful. So I would say you've got to understand the local context and that is playing to your strengths. Well, absolutely
0: really incredible feedback and response from you even um, some of what the content, uh, some of the content that we're writing in this book at least involved trying to understand entrepreneurs. And now since your work previously as a consultant, uh, working for investment banking, of course, and now at Harvard, would you say that you've seen a founder that embodies exactly what you mentioned? And maybe like if you were to be able to understand their mi- mindset, at least, what did you see from them? And should people who have really great ideas try to emulate someone else? Or should they want to chart their own path, as you mentioned? Or should they really try to model their path? And is it something
2: that uh, you have insight there on? It's a great question. And again, you know, I'm here in my personal capacity uh, and I'd love to share my personal anecdotes. Uh, of course. Um, you know What's interesting is... You know, in life, it's so easy to share anecdotes and insights, but being either an investor or particularly an entrepreneur is all about doing. It really is where the rubber hits the road. Uh, It's an incredible journey to grow a business from idea uh, into an actual going entity. I mean, there is a moment in time where Mark Benioff of Salesforce decides, you know, to set up Salesforce in his apartment and there's incredible... Uh, stories written about that, or when Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, who cut his uh, teeth at D.E. Shaw, one of the most incredible hedge funds, some of the smartest people in the world could have been a great career decides to go to the so-called long tail as Chris Anderson of Ted describes it, that long tail where he realized that, wait a minute, there are all these books that could exist worldwide that no single Large bookshop in New York City will ever have all those titles, and so he developed a whole model about serving the so called long tail, realizing the economies of scale that technology would bring. There are these moments, right? Um, and there is no right or wrong, there is no right or wrong. Different entrepreneurs have gone about it the different ways, and we we hear of all the success stories, but for the many success stories we hear about, there are thousands more that are not successes, and a lot of that is. A combination of uh, not just the entrepreneur, but timing, sometimes luck, the ecosystem, the partners you choose. And that is why the birth of an organization, it's such an incredible journey to be a part of, not just as an entrepreneur, but also as an investor. And a lot of it is, as someone who has been a risk practitioner as well, is while success is never guaranteed, great venture capitalists as well as great entrepreneurs really come together to co-create and work to reduce risk. Meaning how do you as much as possible minimize elements that could lead to failure, but pave as much as possible a path to success. And usually in that is this concept of optionality that as you progress through the path, you want to be adaptable and flexible. And so there's a couple of things I've noticed that certainly work well um, particularly, you know, as an investor, you know, as someone who's been a coach and a mentor, you know, to entrepreneurs that have done remarkable things. One of the first elements I would suggest is that you've got to have what I would call a burning curiosity, this burning energy, this relentless pursuit to never give up because there will be many points in this journey of either creating a business where you'll be low to to throw in the towel right and once you're in it to continuously grow so one is we're looking for that but then combined with determination usually it is um, a combination of drive but also comfort with data and facts we often talk about founders dilemma that the brilliance usually that you have in a founder whose original idea would have set them up for success How do you pair that with what you would call coachability, the ability to listen, uh, the humility to say, wait a minute, I may be getting the sources of advice. You know, All of these folks are trying to give him or her advice on an idea that they've kick-started and and, maybe it's gaining trajectory. But to to be able to say, wait a minute, is there something I could gain or listen or grow from? And that coachability, that ability to genuinely listen is important. I think the ability to attract talent is absolutely critical. Today, it's about building teams. It's about partnerships. And how you're able to think about growing the pie of your business is absolutely critical. You know, what percentage of that bigger pie are you willing to have versus, um, you know, this approach that um, um, it's all about a command and control approach. And so I think that balance between that vision and inspiration that it takes for someone to one day wake up and say, I'm going to try and do something new, change the world, change a sector, you know, become a competitor a challenger. That that is a gutsy move and you've got to applaud it. But the path from that to success is about execution. And so I spend a lot of my time, uh, you know, helping people think about what does it mean to be able to execute. And over the years have been with brilliant founders that have taken businesses to great successes, but have also uh, um, seen and, and, and engaged founders where um, for whatever reason, mainly it's usually, usually due to blind spots, a um, uh, 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 fall short of what the true potential could be. Now, everybody has blind spots, all of us do, right? The trick is to be aware that you have blind spots and to actively seek to counter that. And I found that, particularly in the venture capital world, you've got to have partners that are able to go with you through the journey and that chemistry that exists where both, it's not just capital, but you're truly working to unlock the ecosystem. So I hope that feels some thoughts. I'd right. love to get ideas from you guys.
1: I think, uh, Yuvin, I think you hit the nail here, right? I mean, at least for me, either as an investor or an entrepreneur. Uh, these are just table stakes, right? I mean, you need to be sure that you, it always starts actually with like the mission, right? Because, it, I mean, I, I was asking my wife the other day, we're talking about this and we're saying that, you know, to really kind of quit, let's say, uh, you know, a job that, especially if you're an executive already, right? Like a managing director and stuff and say, you know what, screw this, I'm going to stop this and start a the company. There's a little bit of, um, I mean, crazy is not a term, but like this burning desire to change the future that actually these things is not because it's not practical right in the end of the day let's say if you're making a good amount of money you're in a good position some of these entrepreneurs are some of the smartest most ambitious people but they still do it right like why didn't they just go to let's say be an executive in a company and when you ask them and even someone like me right like why why do that it's not because i just need to create money right it's actually because there's a problem that you say, before I die, I need to solve it, right? I think that, it starts with that, right? I mean, and, you know, I I was funny because when I was doing a bunch of keynotes, um, you know, when I was running a fund before, I always end my slide with with the Grand Canyon slide. I don't know if you know this, Dan, but I had this Grand Canyon slide of, like, I was in Grand Canyon and then I was uh, in a park ranger, right? And the park ranger said, yeah, the Grand Canyon's been here for, like, 5,000 years. And then it kind of hit me. I was like, oh, shoot, like, I only have 100 years max, maybe in my life. Maybe knock, knock on wood, right? The Grand Canyon will still be there, and I won't be there. So, what did I do for my time in this earth? Love it, right? And it kind of messes with your mind. Right? If, if, I don't know if it's a normal way to think, but at least it hit me, right? And I think that's how entrepreneurs think, or people who are like say risky venture capitalists think. Is like, you know what? yeah, we only have a finite time on Earth. Like, we've got to take advantage of it, right? Um, yeah, you
0: know, to, to, to be honest, yeah, I went to the Grand Canyon for the first time back in January and kind of had this, uh, I don't know, epiphany moment, you want to call it. But just the journey there, the drive from San Francisco to the Grand Canyon, we were driving uh, in pitch black dark in somewhere between California and Arizona. And I was just thinking, this, there, there's, you're very isolated and there's, there's like more to life than, than work or maybe than what's, Normally on your mind, and it's 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 one of those eye-opening moments, right? I think founders have these eye-opening moments when it's this is what matters to me, and if it's what matters to me, then I'm gonna go and sail into the sea. And I think maybe that's kind of what uh, okay. we're working on or thinking about.
1: Hey, been hey, I I have a interesting question. It's really about you, right? Like, I mean, you're one of the most dynamic people I know, right? And people, and and you're actually one of the biggest Um, kind of risk-takers that I know ever, right? In many different careers, in many different parts. I mean, now you're in faculty, right? I mean, you don't have to do this. Uh, Tell me about like, you know, based either your childhood, your early experiences, like what gave you this burning desire or passion that others frankly do not have? I mean, was there a particular point in your life that kind of ignited this?
2: Oh, no, it's an interesting question of how do you define risk in your mindset? Um, and, and, you know, one of, one of the most fascinating roles um, I was very fortunate to work with um, is that a common element is I've been very fortunate to work with just incredible people all the time. Uh, yeah. That were mentors, colleagues, peers. Um, but you raised this concept of risk and risk taking. Um, and, um, you know, uh, so, some may not... Feel that you know joining joining a faculty and becoming <laughs> becoming becoming someone who's a practitioner is is actually risk because it, it's an incredible privilege you know to to be here, but risk it, it is a perception, and where I really started getting into this whole concept since you raised the subject of risk is um, I became head of risk appetite. For one of the largest pan-African banks across the retail book, and Mm. what an incredible, um, what an incredible uh, experience in terms of really digging deep as a risk professional, and being very data-driven. Part of it is risk appetite is shaped by many factors, but you've got to think of risk whether you're an entrepreneur of how you're leading your life as to what is it that you're aiming to achieve. And so one of the analogies I always draw on, uh, be it in the risk fraternity, but also in an institution where we're really about helping leaders uh, accelerate, helping companies accelerate, is we wrote a case on Nelson Mandela in 2003. And I was fortunate to write this case with Rosabeth Muscanta. She's a great, incredible academic and storyteller, one of the great business thinkers of our time. And we were looking for an alternative leader to think about how should one look at risk in our life? And Clay Christensen also wrote an incredible book. Clay Christensen being the father of disruptive innovation, incredible thinker. Many businesses have either grown out of his ideas or accelerated out of his ideas. This concept of how do you grow? How do you measure your life? And again, I'm paraphrasing the title, you know, the measure of your life. And the link between the kind of Mandela work and christensen 's work is this idea of how you perceive risk and how do you manage risk so that whatever you 're doing you 're getting this intersection right you 're really passionate about what you 're doing that 's the first kind of circle next, can you truly be world class at it like offer something that you're not just passionate about it. Like, so Earl, as an example, I'm going to hazard a guess. You and I could be, say, for example, passionate about golf. <laughs> <laughs> we may not win. I, I don't think there's a chance we may win the, you know. The US Open or whatever. Right yeah. <laughs> we can practice from now to, you know, for the rest of our lives, right? So even though we're passionate about that, you've got to say, are you passionate? Can you truly do something that makes an impact on people and that you're good at it, right? Perhaps make a contribution to that field, shape it. And lastly, can you create an ecosystem that allows you to survive and do the things that we all have to do, help our kids through school and make sure that that ecosystem works, right? And getting those three are quite important. Now, in the case of how you measure your life, Christensen asks exactly that same question and it's very important to have that discussion with entrepreneurs. How do you do that? In the Mandela case as an example, think about Nelson Mandela and we studied him as a leader for lessons for business leaders. Here's Nelson Mandela, incredible leader of his time graduates as an attorney. He's a lawyer. And in that particular era, Mm -hmm. very busy, very successful practice. And so it's to your point that you raised where Mandela thinking through his mind, let's not call it, it's not entrepreneurship, but it is a journey to create something, to build something, right? Entrepreneurs building a business. If we, if we, if we get some, uh, some license in our analogy here, no, you know, done with the utmost respect, Mandela is building a movement, right? He's building a movement, right? Because ultimately, What are many entrepreneurs also building? Movements. They're building people together to change how they do things, to be courageous enough. Now, obviously, the scales are completely different in terms of what's at stake, okay? But we often draw this diagram of how comfortable life could be for an attorney. And what is that decision point that you take where you say, wait a minute, I'm going to stop this path of yes you could be living under these conditions that were quite, you know, incredibly challenging human rights wise at the time, but you could have settled for a very different life. And you've got to admire that these leaders that step out and create. And so my message is, is that for me, what has been a primary driver, number one, work with incredible people, always adding value and make sure that in that moment of time, that it's satisfying you you know, what's important to you. And so one of the elements for me has always been about the role of being a mentor, of supporting, but also being in an environment that's rich and nourishing and that you can grow and how can that work, which is why I found both our time in the West Coast and now at HBS incredibly, incredibly stimulating. Now let's bring that to entrepreneurship and venture capital. Uh, you know, you, you and I have both been angel investors in various elements and I have coached and mentored folks. I think one, one of the most important elements is this ability for leaders to manage risk. We often had this adage whenever we were mani- managing risk books that the only way to stop risk in a supermarket, the risk of pilferage, is how do you get zero risk? You close the business. So you cannot close your business. <laughs> you have to manage risk. And how you manage risk becomes important. So let's give some tips. And then here I'm going to go into the agile mindset. Agility. Mm. is to get into a process whereby you are able to respond rapidly and in real time in an environment in which not all the facts are known. So question, Dan, you, you, you've spent time on the West Coast. Yes. If you're at seed stage, are all facts known? No. No revenue uncertain actually. is that? You started with, say, one person and some faith, You then grow to two because you've got a co-founder. You're trying to recruit your first person. Person may ask you, do you have any income or revenue at the moment? Yes or no, usually. Usually, No, 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 most of the time. You're deep in the hockey stick. Where's the office? So clearly that's the wrong question if you're asking that, right? So Right, right. So all great businesses, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, they began. In a garage. In the garage, right? Literally, but even before the garage, there was that idea. And so part of it is how do you minimize the risk? The first is your ability to try and get as best as possible 2020 vision. Know your strengths, know your weaknesses. Number two, surround yourself with the right people and the right partner, be it an investor. Are they people that close your so-called blind spots or enhance? And then the third, which I love about the agile world, is execution, execution, execution. And so Earl mentioned, and I wanted to clarify, you know, in January... I co I led with a wonderful, wonderful colleague, a true leader. Um, we were very humbled to launch the first agile, what we call short intensive program, which brought together thinkers in the world mm. of agility. And what is agility ultimately about? Quick iteration so that you're essentially, think of it as you creating an organization that is running rapid experiments. That's how entrepreneurs are right at the beginning. Coding launching something does it work let's test it in the field it comes back we iterate we change and so part of it is how are entrepreneurs able to get into the so-called iterative loop to rapidly get feedback the longer you take to get the feedback the further down you are in a particular path the harder it is to change the trajectory right and so we look for that in the leader the ability to absorb listen learn the coachability Are you building an adaptable organization? Because right at the beginning, if you think of a rocket launch, you know that at the start of a rocket, if you don't really know where the destination is, you have a general picture that we want to get into outer space, that a small degree of angle at the start can put your trajectory off quite far. And so how do you shorten that path to get that? So I'd love to get your thoughts um, because I'm a huge fan of embedding the so-called agile mindset, the adaptable mindset. It doesn't mean free for all You have a very clear path of what it is that you are able to deliver, but you build in the central nervous system of people that you bring in. And part of that is transparency. Part of that is communication. How do you build that in? And as a venture capitalist, someone who's been fortunate to spend time there, I always encourage founders to start thinking in these terms. Because the more feedback you get early on from those, they're not always going to give you the right feedback. So you've got to filter it, right? But the more you're able to get those feedback loops and adjust, the better it is. The more you're able to listen to your most valuable asset, which is your team who are close to the customer, how important is that? The more you're able to adapt and listen to your customers. And so my final point is that if you look at organizations like amazon.com, which were really born out of the entrepreneurial vision Uh, of of, of an incredible founder, right? At this moment in time, Amazon reputedly is able to deliver new code that impacts the customer ecosystem and value chain less than once every 10 seconds. Now think of that feedback loop, the ability that you are tweaking that model that fast. So if you were a competitor that wants to take on... um, this value proposition, this offering, you're only taking on the value proposition of being the marketplace to the world. You're actually taking on the DNA and central nervous system of an adaptable organization that's able to get this feedback and change. And when you put it that way, brick and mortar companies have an incredible journey, not impossible journey, but an incredible journey to be able to build in that level of adaptability and, 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 and learning. And again, I want to come back to Earl's original question, which was a great personal question, is that this element of how you engage risk in your life is that how does the risk become opportunity? How do you create option value out of risk? How do you make sure that your ability to respond, because Amazon is existing, I'm using them as an example, Salesforce, Google, they've got competitors all around them how are they able to adapt and change when others are also facing the risk? And so I'll pose that question to you that when we come to George Dorio faced World War II and we spoke about how that venture (laughs) mindset, now that we're in COVID-19, possibly one of the most challenging faces we'd face in our generation. You know, back to you, who who do you think, and again, there's no right or wrong, do you think there are organizations uh, that seem to be more adaptable And I want to put this in the right context. Being adaptable is not taking advantage of a situation. It's building resilience into your organization. So you are there to support your employees. You are there to support the family members. You are there to support your customers that you kept the lights on. The food delivery takes place. Sure. And if you're on the front line, I'm using that context, that people that were able to adapt to serve and serve with a capital S, how do you guys think? So first of all, is what I'm saying resonating with you and on, around risk and your ability to deal with that? You'll never get rid of it, but how you would deal with that becomes the mindset of success. But what's your thoughts? Who, who do you think leaders yeah. in general, who's getting it right? Earl, Dan, what's your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I love how
0: you brought Jeff, Jeff Bezos um, as a, an example of uh, someone who is you know, continuously iterating on a very successful company people who I see continuing to innovate and especially times of change are, obviously Zoom has become the learning platform that we are on and also the learning platform for many universities around the country, around the world. And I think that how Zoom has been able to uphold the communication between peers who may lack that nuance in person and maybe even a company called Tandem Chat which is a startup here in Silicon Valley that is focused on um, remote work. Um, so, so maybe these people were in the right place in the right time because of the surge of demand for their products and their services. But I would say that
2: those, those stand out to me, of course, just being tech-minded, but... Well, let me push uh, you, Dan. What, what yes, stands yes. out other than being a tech company in the right sector at the right time where people needed to connect? What do you? Is there any knowledge on? Is is it a leadership thing? Okay. What 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 st- stands out? You know, because in hindsight you can see. Right. You know, you can see that they what. What do you think would be some of those characteristics? What you
0: said about leadership, I think it's just uh, doubling down and these times of hardship. I think leads to. We don't want to just say growth, but it leads to pivots. It leads to iterations, and it leads to. You know, you were. Not as much able to do sales or be aggressive, and certainly there have been, you know, startups like maybe trip actions, where they lose their rev. And we'll go into the airline industry where they, like all the major airlines, um, they'll lose a lot of their revenue because no one's there's no demand. You can't fly. There's certain restrictions on coming into the country for sure. And I think just what they're thinking of doing is going to define their history or define their not only their growth but their their identity and 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 going back into you know when you did this lecture I remember when I was in in the class even a year ago we look we look into the power of habits um and Charles Duhigg's explanation of how crisis is actually it's seen in a negative light but it has the power to propel and um I think just in general people there are people who, who answer the bell or who answer the call in, in these certain situations.
1: And that, yeah, that and, defines them. I think that's a good one, Dan. I think your last point there, I think is, to be honest, I think this is what, the, the crisis molds real leaders, right? It's kind of my thoughts. Uh, exactly what you said. I mean, these are, these this crisis really show um, what they're good leaders. In fact, that was something that me and my peers starting companies now um, were saying is that you know, the funny thing is that this is probably the first uh, major crisis of what it calls a digital generation, right? Like people who yeah. came in, you know, uh, they're probably in their 20s. I mean, the boom of Silicon Valley kind of post-financial uh, crisis is like on fire, right? I mean, who could imagine, let's say a year ago, you know, you could literally get money and raise a pre-seed fund for two three million dollars with uh, some, you know, basically a piece of paper and an idea, right? And I, don't, I think now that's not really, you know, at least there's already there's some discussion in the venture world that that's going to be more difficult, right? But I think what will distinguish um, uh, people now in this crisis is, number one, how they lead, and number two, how they actually become hyper-realist in their organizations, right? And, you know, it's funny, right? I mean, um, you know, you, you can always say, yeah, you know, but I, this is what happened in the past 10 years, or maybe this is not going to happen to me and my organization. But I think right now, if you're kind of in this bubble of like, you know, it's not going to happen to me it's not going to happen to us or to keep data and to keep what's really happening out there from let's say your employees or your investors, it will come out. Right. And I think this crisis then will mold, I think this next generation of what I call is more, you know, um, you know, both kind leaders, but also hyper-realist leaders that know now how to navigate more uncertainty, right? Which actually is quite exciting, right? I mean, I think especially as a as an entrepreneur and then also as investors, I mean, the, the guys who come out of this crisis will probably lead the next billion, you know, multi-billion dollar companies because they're forged in fire, right? And fire that the world sees now because it's so transparent, Versus, let's say, even 10 or 20 years ago where this leadership mishaps does not get exposed in public, right? So it's kind of an interesting uh, time, actually.
2: Great examples. And you, you, both of you, you, such rich and powerful language. Uh, but if you, keep it grounded, you. <laughs> if you keep it grounded in our, our discussion, you know, when you first you know, invited me and said, please come spend some time discussing these issues of leadership, and hopefully they can be of value, is that there's no right or wrong. No entrepreneurs need to find based on their context what works for them. And what's interesting is um, you use the words forged in fire, and I could be you know paraphrasing, but one of the great business <laughs> historians, uh, Nancy Kane, has a book of the similar title, Forged in Forged in Fire, and she she studies lead- leaders and uh, someone who's been um, someone I've learned from tremendously in, in my life. I love how she brings the richness of stories to life. Um, But you're using those words is that there are different types of leaders that exist and different types of entrepreneurs. There is no single methodology. And so with all humility, you know, what we're discussing today, you have to find your own path within the context. And there's what we call quiet leaders. Leaders that um, may not be immediately charismatic, you know, riding to the front, yet they're the most effective and powerful leaders that are getting the job done. Um, Servant leaders. And then there are other leaders that are at the right time able to rally forward. So there is no right or wrong model. What is interesting is getting things done. The ability to move from idea to getting what we call traction. And what are the tools to reduce the risk of the so-called getting traction. And part of that is strategic vision, but uh-huh. also operational discipline. Operational discipline is quite important in a particular startup. Uh, in terms yeah, of absolutely. That iterative, that iterative cycle. Um, there's lots of great ideas, right? Uh, Dan, how many great ideas do we see? And I mean, really good <laughs> ideas, right? I think so, yeah. And a lot of the business plans are focused on the great ideas, right? Mm-hmm what goes through our mind as we helping folks truly partner, whether you're an investor or not, what, what is the de facto part of it for me is, can you help? Can you, can you assist even if it's a conversation and I go back to original question as to why growing up in South Africa uh, in the eighties, finishing high school in mm-hmm. the eighties, mm-hmm. many of us did not know what our futures would hold for us. Right. And so for me, bumping into those uh, leaders from the United States that opened the first office um, in consulting, one of the major blue chip consulting houses, and pure fortune, part being at the right place, graduating at the time uh, post Nelson Mandela's release and getting that opportunity to join an international blue chip where those mentors invested with so much Of course, we worked hard and we worked, uh, let me confess, seven days a week sometimes, right? But we were learning at the same time and we were part of changing corporations and businesses. We advised the first large telcos to expand out of South Africa to grow into the largest, some of the largest emerging markets telcos and largest telco players. You're there with a team at the early genesis of this. And what I really love about the venture capital world is that It's not just the capital that you're sharing. We truly learn from the founders. You're you're learning together. And it's the same model uh, in this environment that it is always about co-learning. I think how you get that loop going of quickly learning, adapting, but then acting, implementing is is important. We talk about, uh, I released an article called uh, Seven Strategic Lessons in COVID-19. And I draw on lessons from the agile world we talk about the Stockdale Paradox. Have you, have you come across the Stockdale Paradox? Don't think so. No, uh, no. So the Stockdale Paradox, um, you know, a number of leaders have been talking about it, is it comes from, um, from James Stockdale, who was captured as a prisoner of war. And he analyzed how do you respond in such, call it a crisis or a challenging moment. And the Stockdale Paradox is about leaders who in that moment are completely honest and frank about what is being faced, but at the same time providing hope. So there's a paradox. You don't sugarcoat it. And so what James uh, Stockdale noticed is that those that were overly optimistic and said, everything's going to be okay, we're going to be released by Christmas, or those are the ones that really suffered that when Christmas came and it didn't happen. And so Earl and Dan, when you mentioned out of this crisis are going to come leaders that are radically transparent. I'm adding some, some new words. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Of course. course. Of course. It's really this, I'm couching it in a framework. I call it the venture mindset of the stocktail paradox. This is going to be a tough journey forged in fire. As you use those, 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 those. those (laughs) those Yeah. 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 (laughs) You don't have that. This is how it's going to be. Right. Really tough crossing the so-called chasm of Mm -hmm. entrepreneurship, right? We call it the chasm. Some make it through the so-called chasm and go on to that growth. Amazon made it through. Now it's at the top. It has to keep reinventing itself to maintain that momentum, right? Microsoft has to reinvent it, but they all started. Bill Gates, he started that as a founder of a company. There's all these seeds being planted. it it goes through this mindset. And so I wanted to share that, that you want to help entrepreneurs really get into that rhythm of getting things done in an uncertain environment that at any point a new competitor could could enter. And you're trying to disrupt company X, who may be an incumbent. And incumbent X suddenly decides you Netscape Navigator. And then the incumbent decides to launch Internet Explorer. You Mm -hmm. have to be adaptable. Your ability to be resilient. What's the other thing? Are you the victim of something that is totally unfair? It may very well sometimes be the case, but you've got to deal with that, but also be adaptable. And so in COVID-19, particularly as someone with a a foot in in, in the African continent, for for me, part of the challenge is that you're in different chapters of that entrepreneurial journey to recovery. Because make no mistake, everyone is in an entrepreneurial mindset of how to recover. We don't know the full answer. No one knows. You can see how each country and corporation has reacted differently. It's like thousands of experiments. And what's going to help you through that is your ability to iterate, learn fast and adapt. Is Are we in the right direction? Adapt, iterate. And to me, that's the beauty of the venture capital mindset. I believe the venture capital mindset, whether you're in a large company or a small company, epitomizes that. And Earl, as someone who's worked in both large and small companies, I mean, what's your thoughts? You've worked in large corporations, helping them, trying to help them become more nimble, mm-hmm. right? What, what's, what's your thoughts? Which global CEO of large Fortune 500 do you not hear saying, I want to be more nimble, more responsive, <laughs> more customer-centric? And not, not, they genuinely do. And remember, the DNA that got them to be number one is incredible DNA. Oh, of course, how, how, what's your thoughts in that? Because I spend a lot of time in that space, helping, you know, strategically from strategy to operations.
1: Yeah, that's a good point, yuvin Right. I think the the critical question, I think uh, at least for me, is, you know, there there is. I think it's about humility, right, and it's about transparency. So a lot of CEOs, it's about all also about like how serious they are, because. You know, if you have to go in front, let's say, investor relations and your stock market, and you don't say that you're agile and you're nimble and you're doing these experiments, then your stock price will tank, right? But the CEOs who actually do it, to actually believe it and actually put in their own careers in line to actually make this thing happen, will distinguish, I think, the companies that will survive and the companies that will not survive, right? Because they're going against two things. And this, is, I think, for me now as a, as a founder, I have the benefit of creating my own culture, my own systems, my own thoughts, right? But a lot of corporate CEOs, they're there. And again, these companies are multi-billion dollar companies for a reason, because their systems worked in the past 20, 30, 50, sometimes 100 years. That's a good point. right? But does that apply after this crisis? Maybe. Some of them is a maybe. Some of them is maybe not. So the 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 CEOs that will actually be, you know, saying and again adopt your 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 style or your mindset and saying, yeah, these things actually should happen to you and you should embrace it, and you should put on your own career in line. And to be honest, the whole management team's career in line to make sure this org- organization changes, I think, are the ones that will survive. Before, right.
2: before Dan, love to get your. I wanted you to come in, but I, I wanted to to just push back a bit on. on to Earl, give you a flavor of, of some of the discussions we have here. We love to yeah, Let's go. Yeah. Go challenge. <laughs> is, is it not putting your company and career on the line? If you don't make the change in some of these industries? No, but then Just the thing to, is, yeah, no, I, totally, take, totally. Take ING bank as an example, often written about uh, organization where that leadership says we are going all agile and in an incredible journey ensues of changing, because what is it at the end of the day? It's a change in culture. And so there's a lot that has been written on that. And you go on and you see the videos and you've got to applaud that courage, right? But at the same time, it's not just about betting the farm. It's the risk mindset of reducing it, right? And it doesn't have to be the big bang. It's the smart strategic approach. If you're in banking or FinTech or telco now, you know, the payments landscape is changing, traditional and non-traditional players. You know, social media is changing. You know, content is becoming important. You know, that boundaries uh, uh, and borders uh, are, are changing, that the world of data is changing. How you become nimble on that. And that's why I wanted to say, yeah, reason not about heroics, right? Does it always have to be? I'm going to bet the team. I'm going to, how do you as a risk no. go? We're going to do this the smart way. So, so this is the thing, Yuvian, right? Like risk, it's not about petting the farm.
1: Risk is actually becoming humble, right? Humility should be the number one trait of the CEO post-COVID, right? But unfortunately, I mean, most of the time people get to be CEO because they're not humble, right? Which is funny. You think right? so? I think so. I think so, right? I, mean, I if, think you know, CEO is a
0: lot of a PR or like a lot of uh, show face.
1: When, uh, like, yeah, think, I mean, so sometimes. that's I think the, the critical I'm thing. I'm going right? to
2: challenge you guys again that from my experience, of course, the big generalizations are tough, right? But the feeling I get, again, we don't want to, if you look at a Paul Pullman out of Unilever, an amazing vision of what a company should be translated into action and he does talk about the risks that came with that, that he took. But again, what an incredible leader that marries knowing Mm -hmm. that it's in that circles I spoke about commitment and passion combined with smart business sense, unlocking value. Right. And I think that, I think there's a lot. I, I am a fundamental believer in the power of business doing good, yes. Unlocked, yes. unlocking of, of, of value, and so a lot of what we study now, not just all in the ESG, the so-called ESG phase, a mm-hmm. mm-hmm. movement, is this is this desire for corporate leaders number one to keep their businesses going, to, to employ and unlock that value. Um, but even in, in in particularly the world that we're familiar with even in silicon valley there's a lot of consciousness in terms of uh and it's an ongoing debate of how can you get that alignment that balance between customer and 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 an employee so i'm an optimist I'm i'm confessing i'm a, I'm, I'm a bit of an optimist um, is there improvement yes so i wanted to just 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 uh, just yeah, yeah. who are some of the ceos you, or leaders, public, private, you think are getting it? Yeah, no, that's
1: a good question, Yuvan. Right, like I, I'm, I, I, I mean, I, I probably still need to kind of immerse myself in that side because I haven't really. Um, but but obviously, like I mean, you mentioned right, like you know, Unilever. I mean, these are the people who actually have done it for decades, right? It's not actually like they just came up with COVID and changed their mind, right? So that's why I'm saying like consistency, humility, like these are traits that you've seen not because of COVID time, but because they've been doing it since before, right? So I think that is the, the interesting part about this, right? Is that how do you then, I think these are types of leaders that are true and constant uh, and make sure that like these organizations kind of power through this time, right? But you had predicted that if you met them even three years ago, right? Because they already have that mindset. Right, and I think that's why it's an interesting time now. If people haven't had the chance, it's kind of these leaders now that are really thinking about and rethinking. Unfortunately, only the past two months of how to change their businesses for the future. Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, if there's a specific person in mind, I haven't had at least a, uh, a thought of who that is yet. So,
2: uh, Earl is taking some easy easy ways out here. He's not putting really <laughs> in the ground, Dan, as you can see um th- there is there is no there is no it's very difficult because for anyone you may think of as a company or organization you admire trust me there'll be someone who thinks the opposite sure. and that's the power of what we call learning the, the human experience right um we're gotcha. all learning from one another we're sharing thoughts it's not the gospel um but one one common element is to translate words into actionable steps. So to me, we often say, how can we move faster and respond? And so I, I I share this equation that I I love it when, when leaders pull the pieces together, that's trust equals speed. Sure. The more trust you have in an organization, you'll usually find less committees, less layers make decisions. And so you're able to move. When Earl says humility, it completely resonates. That if you want a partner, of course you want it. But what does humility equal? A lot of people will say, oh, you know, humility. To me, humility, again, an interpretation, is to truly be the servant leader to the customer. That you are completely in tune with that. And how do you get what we call alignment through making humility a verb? You know, Mm -hmm. verb. It's that ability that you are adjusting your business. You're humble enough to adjust it to suit the needs of the customer, not the other way. And that's what I love about the ING story. No story is perfect, but it is a story I do share. And and it's continuously, we're continuously learning about it is that when the leadership goes and there are many anecdotes and coming from banking and telco, it's, and I'm paraphrasing that you all get the statement. If you get a credit card, usually the terms and conditions is really a huge document. Who's read it? Earl, have you read it? No one reads it. I, and I'm paraphrasing. I think, this, I think one of the CEOs said, who has read it? I, I think very it sounds few. Good. Right. <laughs> Thanks, I read it, right? And he said, it has to change. If, if you don't have that in one or two pages that humans can understand, what's the point? When you apply for a home loan to a vehicle loan, you have to fill in the same paperwork. Not, that's not from the customer, right? It's now, funny. you could have the sign saying we are customer-centric unless you translate that into right. action. And to me, the humility is about that ethos of really... And, and it's so easy. Everybody wants to be customer-centric, but then it's, oh, but we can't. Our systems, our data, we are siloed. We have, you know, several databases, information is stored in this server and then in that server. And so humility equals the courage to be humble and the courage to take the decisions to truly serve the constituents that, that you are created to. I, I wanted to throw that out to you guys. And yes. if I have to rephrase the question, who do you think is really getting customer service from? If you had to look at a venture that started, who's getting it right? You think, wow. Hey, uh, you even, I have an answer. I have a response to
0: this. The first day that I met you, you walked into the office and you had all birds. Like you, the office,
2: the U's office, sure. Um, oh, all birds, the, the, the shoes. Yes, yes, man. And, I, you know, in this book, but I Dan, think Dan, Dan, not to, not, I, I, what, what did you interpret from that? I'm fascinated. Sure, sure. You even, and okay. I interpret, <laughs> I don't remember,
0: but if I had to look back and try to see what I thought or remember what I thought, I think, you, I guess you're wearing Arcteryx now, and you're you know, you wanted to uh, uh exude your
2: fashion sense in a, in a, in a little bit. <laughs> so, too, I love Arcteryx, but I'm glad you raised all birds. And, and first of all, their head office and flagship store in right. San Francisco was beneath our offices, so, right. so that made life easy, <laughs> <laughs> okay? So, right, but the second is absolutely look you, at the values. Know, been, let, me, let, me re, let me just okay. uh, jump look in at right the here. values and, and i'd love for you to talk about the values of alberts so let's sure, put sure, it on sure. pause you know i i think i i was wearing alberts too that day and i was like "Are <laughs> hey, you wearing alberts
0: but uh what i remember call was a uh,
2: to me that a pair of shoes dan so yeah. it's like putting on sneakers
0: <laughs> <laughs> i think i think you recall
2: like they, they got your
0: size wrong or they gave you the wrong color and you had messaged them or emailed them or something and they're like don't worry about it. Keep the ones you have. There's something so good about the customer service that they get right versus Nike. Because I walked into the Nike store in San Francisco, right? And then, and my experience was, okay, nobody's helping me. Should I just leave? Uh, I mean, I needed some shoes desperately. And then, <laughs> and then you know, I get the patience. And then by the time the guy is helping me out, it's like, all right, I just want to leave the store. But Alberts, I don't know. They treat you like in such a culture that is responsive to, to who that person is. And I don't know how they do that because it's like the customer at the customer level. That's not so much Tim Brown's as uh that's not Tim Brown, the CEO doing the, uh, the work that's right. People who work for him and uh, just going up the ladder in terms of the organizations that are getting culture and customer service pr- uh, most well, I think they, they do so because they don't admit when they, they admit when they're wrong and say let's say they weren't even wrong per se. They they still put the customer at the top of the priorities.
2: So it's such a fantastic that's how it is. example. It's such a fantastic example. And, and
0: they're a unicorn too, right? And somebody finds them in 2016. I don't know when you found about found out about them, but there's a perception on what they do with their design, maybe or their brand that makes them desirable. Maybe would you say that? Why, why do you buy Alberts, right? Or like, why
2: do you approve of their company? What, what a fantastic question. And you, you just hit a bullseye in terms <laughs> of a brand that, um, in many ways, talks about customer service, but if you experience it, um, from my experience, lives that from just end, end, end to end. And we'll unpack it a little bit. But first, I have to say, and which I always found fascinating. Now that we can see each other, I see you're in the Patagonia uh, <laughs> camp ecosystem there. I've got the Arcturix vest, you got the Patagonia vest. We can trade a few. But we always tease <laughs> each other that in San Francisco, yes, it's that, it's that kit that you have. Oh my God. But, but I also just want to give you credit. I'm a, I'm a huge Nike fan. I'll be mm-hmm. honest with you. I've got pairs in it. And the service has actually always impressed me at Nike. Uh, in terms of, of exchanges mm-hmm. and uh, ad- ad- adaptation. But they're very different companies, right? One is trip, the trip, ultimate trip. leader in the field. The, one is, one is it's, it's like... Have you heard like Shoe Dog, J- by the way? J.P. Like- J- Morgan on Wall Street, like the big name, and the other is like a small... Yeah. You can see that in many ways, the DNA of all birds... Um, shares DNA with many com- companies uh, including Nike in my opinion but w- where where I w- where, again if you ask I'm speaking my personal opinion where Allbirds impress- impresses me is you're not just connecting to what some have called the most comfortable shoes right um, <laughs> you're, you're also com- connecting to a philosophy and an ethos right uh, they're all eco friendly source their product right so uh-huh. they've got the two areas and again this is a lot of detail, uh, forgive me. they got the Merino world that comes, of course, from New Zealand. But they have a eucalyptus range with trees from South Africa. That's where... That's <laughs> my connection, Dan. Yes. As a South African, I was moved <laughs> and humbled that they took the time to source it and talk about job creation and the forest was done in the right way. I totally believe in that. I, I, I completely believed in that ecosystem. And so I wanted to be of support to that, to that system, but that's such a personal view. Uh What exacerbated it is that once you entered the store and of course it's online, is that the level of service and being someone who's embedded in customer centricity, I confess, I test, I test the customer service, I tested it. They were completely and utterly committed to making sure you had an amazing experience. There's a bit of what we call mass customization. You can pick the colors, you know, they give you all the different colors mm-hmm. of laces mm-hmm. and stuff. And it was so enjoyable that when my, my daughter uh, 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 visited and they have a store in Boston, she had such a marvelous experience at the Allbird store <laughs> in Boston, right? But look at that word of mouth that I was like, you know, you got to come experience this. And I want yeah, you to get, yeah. you know, get that. The other element that's interesting with them is that I was once traveling and it was the wrong size and it had passed their 30 day or 60 day uh-huh. window. And I just sent them a text. and said, I'm really sorry. I've been traveling globally. What a beautiful email. You, they sent you? worry about the, 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 the 30, uh, you know, and I hope I'm not causing trouble. They suddenly get all these emails like past 60 days now, but they try truly understood it. Right. And it was brand new and it was in the box. And of course I, I gave it back. And um, you know, that, 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 level, the question and challenge we will have, and let's bring it back to business as someone who's helped bankers and telcos and startups is how do you keep that culture? When you move from San Francisco, Boston, London, and New York, the kind of four stores to you're all around the world, right? You reach every point. corner, that's the secret sauce, right, of scaling. And in Agile, we call it scaling in a fractal manner. And by fractal, we mean the same way, like a crystal, where you're keeping that culture. And that's the art and science of business. Mm-hmm. And that, that is it, right? That, again, if you look at an amazon.com, whether you, are, whether you are ordering on this part of the globe or that part of the globe, to get that, and so as we conclude and wrap up, you know, in what has been a rich discussion, sharing opinions, sharing sharing ideas. There's no right or wrong. Um, yeah, you know, my commitment and and focus is not just being in the U.S. venture ecosystem, but also very committed to emerging markets. I mean, I, I have uh, maybe I mean, we typically end this uh, this this this
1: uh, this interview with two questions, Yuvin. And, and it's a question really on, on if you had to give advice to your 20-year-old self um, of two things. You know, if, if your 20-year-old self says, you know, I want to reach a point where you are now um, and applying, let's say, a startup mindset, number one is what resources, let's say, top water to books or resources you would recommend to your 20-year-old self. And number two is what is your best advice for this person to then harness his own unique startup mindset?
2: Oh, what, a, what a beautiful question. Um, you know, the, f- the first thing, uh, you know, just to, just to mention, if I look at my 20 year old self, you know, I lost my father when I was very young. Mm. Um, and that's why, even now, you know, both with my children or, or entrepreneurs or even my colleagues that I work with in business, th- this concept of mentorship and true what we call coaching leadership is important. I believe that you've got to give your best to all those around you, because everybody the dignity of everyone around you is so important, the respect. And we all are going to make mistakes, um, but to keep that in mind. So if I have to go back 20 years ago, it will be very similar to the philosophy then. A lot of us were shaped with, as young people, with servant leaders around, the, around us, the Nelson Mandelas, who were role models that we all saw as, as folks that really put this mindset of how do you move forward? Um, and so those of us who chose business as the place that we want to make an impact really have that mindset. So if I had to go back 20 years ago, I would reiterate a couple key messages. Number one, always be in environments that in which you are continuously learning and that you are stretching yourself and that no matter where you are, you are continuously growing. Even now there's so much to do and so much to get going and to, to create and help transform businesses and be in that ecosystem. So make sure you keep that energy and that hunger that you have throughout your life. And that comes from the humility to know that you are constantly learning. Secondly, Surround yourself with people that not only you care about, but in ecosystems that you are deeply passionate about to make an impact. Because then work doesn't become work. Work becomes what it is that you do that's part of you. And when you get that ecosystem, and I share this with my son, who, who's a wonderful, wonderful young man um, who, who gives so much to so many around him, that I see that, that there's an ecosystem in which what he's doing is what he's also passionate about. And so th- those, those, those would be, those would be my, my, my lessons. And last but not least, I grew up in a very small town, as did my wife in South Africa. And life, destiny could take you to many places. Yeah. Don't judge others around. So assume positive intent. Assume positive intent for colleagues around you, entrepreneurs in corporates. Start with the issue of positive intent. Start with the philosophy of how can I help? And likewise, getting this wonderful interview from, from friends, um, you know, to help start your, 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 your podcast and help, you know, k- kickstart it and launch it and, and be of support as you're building it up. It's only a pleasure, right? Is start with the philosophy of how can you help? How can you support um, and I've learned a tremendous amount today. You made me think about things. Thanks so much. <laughs> and I'm I'm so I'm so grateful for that. I wish both of you a really remarkable journey in terms of raising your fund, your 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 new business, your consulting business, as well as your book. Um, and I truly hope that you continue to surround yourself with wonderful people that work hard, that get things done, that deliver results. To Earl's point, that Life provides you this opportunity to do things. It's about making an impact. It's also about accountability. You've got to be accountable for delivering results. The greatest gift as a COO and a CEO, for me, having trained across these disciplines, strategy, execution, risk, delivery, is your success is ultimately, particularly when you have many depending on you, you really got to take those responsibilities, you know, quite, quite seriously. Um, And last but not least, something I learned from the wonderful people I work with and learn from every day. And again, I'm here in my personal capacity, but to my mentors that I, 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 I work with, it's as simple as do good. In business, do good. Right. Um, and how can you live up to that mantra that business is a force of good? It does unlock job creation and opportunity. Sure. And so when I, I look at the U.S. and Africa, as someone who spends uh, a lot of time in both ecosystems, connecting both ecosystems, it is that spirit of creating jobs, opportunities, enablers, and, and empowering people. And um, I've made you know we all I've made many mistakes. I've learned you know I'm learning all the time. Um, and my final, 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 final sure, hope sure. <laughs> is, is, is don't be afraid to make mistakes. Um, I love they, that, yeah. Right? That, building that experimental organization in a smart way uh, is important. And so I would encourage anyone to Google Jeff Bezos and experiments. And he has a remarkable philosophy on experiments, right? He says, if you embark on a venture and know hundred percent that it's going to be certain it's not an experiment anymore. An experiment by definition means there's risk and you're testing things. Right? Mm. And that is an incredible vision to think about and, and learn about. And again, I've picked on certain leaders. There's so many other, you know, there's so many other leaders. I also want to end uh, by talking about the crisis and who are some of the leaders that have stood out? If you look at Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand and um, Angela Merkel, again that Stockdale paradox—being completely honest and frank, but at the same time helping people go through through this journey—I think that's just, you know, remarkable leadership. Uh, and so, whatever journey you're on, public sector, private sector, um, I would say stick, you know, you know, s- stick to that that ability of speaking uh, 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 with, with the transparency, but also guiding, guiding people through dialogue. Um, but a lot of what you said <laughs> triggers so many, so many thoughts that you're absolutely right, that it's not just what you do. The journey is as important as the destination. How you do it and how you build a business is important. Um, so I think that's a valuable lesson. Uh, be it all birds who are building the journey in a certain way or other businesses that are unlocking uh, creation. I think the other element is um, you mentioned Jim Collins, good to great, fantastic book, uh, um, incredible lessons. And other than the elements you mentioned that that was super, one of the big takeaways of that book is he says, um, get the right people on the bus which is That's a true. memorable takeaway sure. right? <laughs> goes exactly to Earl's point that true leaders are able to get others to buy into that vision, to go on the crazy journey of an entrepreneur, right? Crazy journey that we're all trying to help people create these businesses, whether in a big corporation, change the direction of the corporation. We want to do an agile transformation. It's a significant undertaking. and The results can be remarkable, but it's going to take deep experience with discipline, and that focus on putting the people and the customer first. But how you do that journey is your definition. It will, will, will define you as a leadership. So as you proceed on your journey of a book, capturing both leadership and venture and starting your fund, as well as this link between the U S and the Philippines, I uh, wish you all Thank of you the so best. Much. Always here to help you and, and share ideas but very excited about what lies ahead for. for
0: thank, thank you so much, and uh, sa- sharing the same uh, sense of a uh, what do you call that uh, optimism that you have for us, uh, for you as well. And uh, yeah, thank you so much again. Uh, it's been an honor, man.
1: So. It's been an honor, you've been